The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open it to, um, we're going to look at a number of different texts today, and they're all in your, they're all in the bulletin, um, but we're going to look at, be looking at Matthew 3, um, 1 to 12 uh, first um, this morning. If you have any questions about our sermon today, I would love for you to text those to us at the number that's on the screen. And then on Tuesday mornings at 11.15, we go online and we answer those questions. We talk about themes um, from, the, from the sermon. Um, well, I don't know about you, but Christmas is an anxious time. Is any, does anyone else feel anxiety during the holiday season? You're allowed to raise your hand. Who feels anxiety during the holiday season? I think we all feel anxiety during the holiday season. Um, inside, also inside your bulletin, you'll find, you'll find a sermon uh, insert. And on, on the front side of that is someone has, has been kind enough to create a list for each and every one of us called 100 Things to Do Before Christmas. Wasn't that nice? Wasn't that nice of someone to create a list for us of 100 things to do before Christmas? I've had this list for, for a few days, so I've got a few uh, personal favorites that I'm going to share with you from the list. Uh, the first one is the very first thing. One month before Christmas, you are to decorate your powder room with holiday towels, candles, and soap dispensers. A little bit further down that same one month beforehand, buy or make a soft, snuggly blanket to wrap up in. Don't we just have time for that during the holiday season? Um, how about this one? Plant your amaryllis and paper whites. Does anyone even know what an amaryllis is? Okay, a few people. Well, that's good. Did you plant them? That's my question. Did you plant your amaryllis? No. How about this? Wrap Christmas books and open one each night leading up to Christmas Eve. Who's got time for that over the Christmas season? Make sure you and the kids have attire for Christmas concerts, parties, and work gatherings. Go to Christmas craft shows and charity events to support local entrepreneurs and get that one-of-a-kind gift. Two weeks before, so, so you were in this zone now. Right? So, you, so if you've missed all of these one month before things, don't, don't give up. There's hope. Uh, two weeks before, you are to buy or make you've been elfed gifts for the neighborhood kids. Because for those of us who are parents, like, we don't have enough time to get our own kids' presents, so we want to be worried about getting presents for all of the kids in our neighborhood. Clean everything, especially inside the oven. Right? Because... Because if there's anything that we have margin for in the next two weeks, it's for us to clean our ovens. How about this? If you're using fresh greenery, purchase them at a greenhouse and decorate indoors and out. One week before. Set aside time to enjoy your family, home, and decor. The bottom of that one week before list, prepare and set up your holiday tablescape. There's still time. Christmas Eve, have the kids read Twas the Night Before Christmas and film it. That's after you come to the 615, of course. You know, when we read a list like this, we have, we have one, or two, one of two responses. 
We can either laugh about it or we can feel terrible about it, which is what some of us do, right? We see, we see a list like this of all of the things that we have to do before Christmas like this, and, and our, anxiety, um, our anxiety builds. And I know that there are a lot of people who feel terrible during the holiday season because of lists um, like this. In, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this about the Pharisees. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. You know, each Christmas we are, we are bombarded with slogans like peace and hope and love and joy. But that same society crushes us below the weight of perfect houses and decorations and holiday lists like this. And maybe this isn't your list. You know, I'm just going to be honest. I hope this isn't your list. I would suggest if, if this is your list, um, that you throw this list away and not operate this way. So maybe this, isn't, maybe this isn't our list, but every one of us has a list as we go into the holiday season. We have, we have set traditions in our minds, and, and we have told ourselves that, that if we miss one of those traditions, if we miss one of those things that we have so carefully planned that, that we might miss a moment, that that might that thing might, be, might have been the place where, where the magic of Christmas was going to take place for us. A lot of us feel anxious during the holiday season, and we don't know why. We're unsure of what's going on. And as, as we've been talking about this, this Advent series over, over the past month and a half or so, this past week, Mike said something that was really interesting in our staff meeting, he said that Christmas is a disruption of the peace that is our normal lives. I'm going to say that again. I want you to listen. Christmas is a disruption of the peace that is our normal lives. Think about all of the disruption that takes place during this time of year. It doesn't start in December. Actually, it starts at the end of October when, when, when Halloween comes up. Right, Because we all get candy when we do trunk or treat here at Westway Christian Church. People bring us candy. Come, people come and pick up candy uh, during our trunk or, treat, trunk or treat event. And then what we do as a staff is we haul all of that unused candy back into the staff room. Where that, where that staff room becomes a, a room of, you would think, unspeakable joy. Because there's nothing but chocolate. And that's how it works for about, for about four days. And then it becomes a room of sadness and shame. Because, because we just walk into that room and, and we feel obligated. Oh, I have to eat this Snickers bar. I have to eat this thing. I have to do that thing. And, and like three weeks into that, I'm like, I don't want to see another candy bar. I think several times I said, I've eaten more candy in the last two weeks than I think I have the entire year up until this point. So, so then we go, from, we go from Halloween and candy leftovers, we go to the Thanksgiving and Christmas parties, and we, and we eat more and more food, right? And usually it's the worst kind of food for us. And then we eat later than we normally do, so our sleep patterns get affected by that. 
what exercise that, that we might get, we actually get less of because, because the days are shorter, the nights are longer, it's colder outside. All of these things, do we see how all of these things add to our anxiety? We have to pick and choose which events we're going to go to. Because if we don't go to this person's house, then they might be upset with me. So we have to make all of these really tough decisions. And for those of us that are hosting holiday parties, when someone doesn't show up, what, what do we wonder? I wonder why they went to their party, but not to mine. And then there's family. We have, to, we have to try and wrestle through who exactly it is that we are going to visit this year. Well, who did we visit last year? Can we get away this year? Can we, can we even get away just for a few days? For those of us who have older children, we wonder why our kids aren't coming to see us as often as they used to. And finally, money. No matter how many times we, we say that we're going to set aside money for Christmas, we're going to set aside money for the holidays, it rarely happens. We spend money on Christmas things, and then we don't have the money for the things that are part of our normal lives, things like rent, things like our mortgages, things like gasoline. And what I want to do with you this morning is I want, to, I want to walk you through this anxiety that we all feel so we, can, so we can name it, so we can understand why we feel this way. Because for some of us, we've probably never connected all of those dots of all of those things happening. We just know it's Christmas time and we feel a little bit out of sorts and we're unsure why. And I think a season like this, Christmas is disruptive Because it's a shock to our system. Christmas reveals our dysfunctions. It reveals our anxieties. And it reveals the emotions that are really going on inside each one of us. I read something a few weeks ago that that said that because our culture in general has moved beyond uh, religious rituals and religious rites, things things like Advent, as a for instance that we're celebrating here, as our culture has moved beyond religious rites, things that are things that are latent with meaning, what we've done is is we've created our own set of rituals, like elf on the shelf, which creates its own level of anxiety because some of you today you forgot to move the elf. Or some of you, your kids touch the elf, and you told your kids what would happen if they touch the elf, but we all know there's no way in the world you're not buying your kids Christmas presents. So, so we've replaced rituals like an Advent wreath and Advent candles that are obviously meant to slow us down with our own types of rituals. So when we gather together as as a church, one of the things that we want to do is we want to, we want to slow you down. We want to decrease the pace of your life. We want, we want to help you reflect. We want to reorient you. In fact, we want to, we want to create a different kind of anxiety in your life and force you to confront 
that anxiety in a way that's, that's helpful for you. So what, we, what we're doing this year is we're, we're talking about Advent. We're talking about these themes of hope and peace and love and joy. And, and the way that we're doing that is, is we're reading what's called a lectionary. Now, in church traditions other than ours, what they typically do each week, there's a list of, of Bible texts that they talk about. People have just assembled together this list of, of texts that are, that are similar in theme. So in the month of December here at Westway Christian Church, you'll find a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. You'll find a psalm. You'll find a text from one of the letters, and you'll find the gospel reading, and, and that's Matthew. That's usually Matthew for us. So that's where these readings come from. Um, today we're going to begin with the gospel text. We're going we're to start at Matthew chapter 3. And what I would like for you to do while we read Matthew chapter 3 is think about the concept of peace. I want you to look for the theme of peace In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People in Jerusalem and all over Judea, all over the Jordan Valley, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe because we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yet every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not, even, I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Now, if you're like me, if you've not read this text before, Thinking, thinking about the theme of peace. This is pretty disorienting, isn't it? Where, where, where is peace in this text? This doesn't make any sense. And, and every single time we've gotten together as a staff and we've talked about this, I think I've said the exact same thing. I'm really struggling with understanding what is going on here and why this is in the theme of peace. How is John proclaiming peace? How is this a message of peace? 
And then on Wednesday, as I was driving back from Cappuccino and Company after I worked on my message trying to wrestle with Matthew chapter 3, I was almost to the corner here and it hit me what John is doing. John is not bringing peace. In fact, he's doing the exact opposite. John is disturbing the peace. See, rather than, rather than gathering at the temple for worship, the people are going out to the wilderness. Instead of priestly robes that John is wearing, he's wearing clothing of camel's hair. Instead of eating of the sacrifices brought by the people, which would have been the best food that he could possibly eat, he's eating locusts and wild honey. Instead of burning sacrifices and going behind a curtain to meet God, he's in the desert next to a river he's offering to baptize. See, this is, this is the opposite of what their norm was. He is disturbing their peace. He is, he is inserting anxiety into their peace. And when the religious leaders show up, I imagine, I imagine that they were very skeptical of what he was doing. I think they were a little nervous and judgmental because, because what John was doing was mimicking the prophets from the Old Testament time. And if there's one thing, if there's one thing that, that good religious people don't want, it's a prophetic voice who is disturbing the peace of their comfortable religiosity. That is not what comfortable religious people want. They don't want it stirred up. They don't want to feel anxiety. They want to be able to go to the temple and offer their sacrifice and then go home. What John is doing here in a very confident way, he is wreaking havoc on the status quo. He's calling them, he calls them snakes. He puts them in their place. See, and like the good religious people that they are, there's some things that we can kind of infer because we have really one side of the story. We have what John says to them. But I think the other side of the story is these religious people are, are appealing to their religious resumes. They're appealing to, to their genealogies. They're appealing to who they know, which is why he says, and don't think you're safe because you're sons of Abraham. See, for the Jews of this time, it was so important that they could trace their, their genealogy back to Abraham. Abraham. But what John is telling them is that what they're trusting in is empty and it's meaningless. And while it's not too late, the axe is at the root of their self-sufficiency. The axe is at the root of their comfort level of, of trusting in who they were because of who they were related to. And I think what John is saying here, uh, this, this, this statement, I baptize with water, I think what he's saying is this. If, if you religious people are disturbed by me for baptizing with water, well, wait till the Messiah comes. Because he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
and he is bringing fire. And if you're upset with my message as a guy who's just baptizing people with water, he's saying Jesus is going to turn you inside out. Jesus is going to upend your comfort. And for those of us who, who've experienced conviction in our lives, we're familiar with what happens when, when the bad things stir up inside of us, when the chaff gets separated from the wheat, when, when the Holy Spirit digs deeply into our souls and deeply into our dysfunctions and our anxieties. The things that we cling to, our need for affirmation, and our pride and our arrogance. And what John is telling them is there's only one place for those things, for those dysfunctions and those anxieties that we cling to, and that's a roaring fire. He's confronting them in their anxiety. He's confronting them in their comfort and rest in themselves. He's disturbing the peace of their self-sufficiency. Because, because until the realities of who they are can be revealed, there can't really be any peace. See, the Jewish leaders of this time thought there was peace because they could go and they could worship in the temple and they could do all of these things. But the reality is, Jesus was after something more, which is what's going on inside of their heart. So it looks like peace. Like, if we were to look at Jerusalem, and we, I know we've talked about this before, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he sees the way it's all laid out and it looks so wonderful from the outside. Everything looks so at peace, but when he gets inside the city, he sees that it's a mess. And from our vantage point with one another, when we, when we look at one another, don't we often see what others project? Don't we often see what people want us to see? in them. That's the success of social media and Instagram, and that's why we feel badly when we scroll on Instagram all day, because our lives don't look anything like those people's lives. We, there are some of us that actually look at a list like this and think, man, if I could do that, my Christmas would be awesome. If I could nail this, there'd be some amazing things happening. See, when we look at other people, when we look at these kinds of things, it reveals what's going on inside of our hearts. And what John is talking about in this text is he's preaching an invasion of God into the world. He's talking about an invasion of God into a place that's completely unaware and completely unprepared for his arrival. And this was all very disorienting for them, just as it is for us. When we read this text and we're looking for the peace, this doesn't make any sense. So he's, he's warning them. Invasions are messy, violent affairs. What did God's people think would happen when God invaded the earth? What do we think is going to happen when God reinvades the earth? Well, God's people thought there would be peace. 
Where'd they get that idea from? Got it from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament scriptures. This is how they, how they set their expectations of the Messiah. I would love for you to go back to, to Psalm 72. If you open your Bible right in the, about in the middle, you should be in Psalms. We're going to look at two texts from, from the Old Testament, Psalm 72 and then Isaiah 11. You'll find Isaiah a little after Psalms. So while you're turning there, while you're going to Psalm 72, here's a little history lesson. Genesis chapter 1, God makes everything out of nothing, and he says it's good. Genesis chapter 3, humanity disobeys God. Humanity introduces sin into the world, and the entire universe, because of that sin, the entire universe is fractured. The entire universe is off of its, it's, off of its cycle. And in the midst of the judgment... This is what God tells the serpent who successfully tempted Eve and caused her to sin. This is what God said to the serpent. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, her offspring, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. See, that's a, that's a premonition of what's going to happen. Your offspring, serpent, is going to strike the heel of your offspring, Eve. Eve, but your offspring is going to strike his head. Some, some texts say crush his head. Over the next few chapters, we see humanity on this rampage of sin, and this leads to a massive flood which destroys the earth. But God saved eight people and two of every kind of animal, sort of a reboot. You know, the first thing you're supposed to do when your computer doesn't work is Turn it off and turn it back on. That's what God's doing in the book of Genesis. And shortly after this flood in Genesis 11, we're introduced to Abraham. And in chapter 12, God makes this promise. I will make you into a great nation. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham has a son named Isaac has a son named Jacob who has 12 sons. All of these people eventually end up in Egypt enslaved. Moses frees them, and years later, they finally enter into the promised land. Throughout the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they're constantly being told how they are to respond. This is what my people look like. This is how my people are to act. This is how they're to love God and to love one another. And most of the laws that were written were laws that were written about the treatment of one another, about the treatment of other people. Specifically, most of the laws that were written talk about justice towards the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the alien, and the foreigner. And were there rules about worship? Yes, there were. Did they matter? Yes. But here's the thing. The measurement of whether or not the people were being obedient to God, just as much as it was in how they worshiped, the true measurement 
of their obedience to God was the way that they as a nation blessed everyone else because that's what God told Abraham he was going to do. I'm going to make a nation out of you and you are going to bless all of the other nations. So what does that have to do with peace? What does that have to do with Psalm 72? Let's read Psalm 72. Give your love of justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the people always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity for all. May the hills be fruitful. Help him to defend the poor, to rescue the children of the needy, and to crush their oppressors. May they fear you as long as the sun shines, as long as the moon remains in the sky, yes, forever. May the king's rule be refreshing, like spring rain on a freshly cut grass, like showers that water the earth. May the godly flourish during his reign. May there be abundant prosperity until the moon is no more. May he reign from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Desert nomads will bow before him. His enemies will fall before him in the dust. The western kings of Tarshish and the other distant lands will bring him tribute. The eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts. All kings will bow before him. All nations will serve him. He's talking about an earthly king here. Don't, don't orient yourself that he's, that he's talking about the Messiah. What Solomon is talking about is how the kings should reign. All kings will bow before him. All the nations will serve him. He will rescue the poor when they cry to him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He feels pity for the weak and the needy. He'll rescue them. He'll redeem them from oppression and violence for their lives are precious to him. Long live the king. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May the people always pray for him and bless him all day long. May there be abundant grain throughout the land flourishing even on the hilltops. May the fruit trees flourish like trees of Lebanon and may the people thrive like grass in a field. May the king's name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun shines. May all nations be blessed through him and bring him praise. Praise the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does such wonderful things. Praise his glorious name. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This ends the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Do we see how the people, do we see how the leaders following God's law to treat his people leads to, leads to provision, leads to success, leads to flourishing. See, the role of the king was to bring justice. The role of the king was to bring peace. The proper king was to push against the powerful, to push against the influential for the sake of the weak. But you know what most of the kings did? They lived lives of accumulation. Most of the kings lived lives for themselves. They were not obedient to God. And over time, God's people, instead of looking like a nation that was to be an example of all of the other nations around them, God's nation looked like every other nation. They worshiped the same gods. They treated one another just as poorly as people were treated in other nations. And their nation was built on the backs of the weak and the marginalized. So God warned them. 
through prophets, time and time again. That's the role of the prophet was to warn. And just as, just as the people were rejecting God, here's what the prophet was saying. There's going to be a time where God is going to reject you. And, and here's what's going to happen. The Assyrians and then the Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to destroy you. So this is, this, is where, this is where these Old Testament prophecies are coming out of. This is why we get to these people who are calling for a Savior. And the, the proper response is for people to receive justice. This is what God is interested in. This is how we get to this point. So if we go to Isaiah chapter 11. Israel, you're going, basically Israel, you're going to be destroyed. That's the context of Isaiah. We're going to chop you down and there's going to be a stump. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. See, now we're talking about the Messiah. The spirit of knowledge and the spirit and fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will, li- will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion and the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Do you see how this is disturbing to religious people? Do you see how this is disturbing to people who are comfortable in their position of power? Do you see how this is disturbing to people who've who've built a nation on the backs of people who are weaker than they are? This is why John the Baptist's message is so offensive. Because he is telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the Messiah is going to upend them. And when we read these texts, we ought to be concerned as well. Because after the judgment, when Israel's reduced to a stump and that new branch comes, that that they were all excited about, right? We want the Messiah to come. We want the Messiah to come. We want the Messiah to come. When that happened, peace was no longer going to come at the expense of the weak. But it was going to come at the expense of the powerful. 
when the branch comes, when Jesus comes, the marginalized are going to find safety. The poor are going to find security. They're going to find peace. What Isaiah is talking about is the day when the Messiah comes and he brings justice. He's talking about an invasion by a new king, and this king is bringing peace. He's bringing justice. And what he's saying is, if you are, if you are earning your power through oppression, if you have what you have because you have kept other people down, Isaiah is saying, watch out. If you are subjecting other people to violence for your own gain, the Messiah is coming. The king is coming. And it was not the peace that these people were expecting. And centuries later, when John the Baptist comes, he tells the religious people plainly that their day of reckoning is coming. In fact, he says it's already upon them because Jesus was already alive. It wasn't just that the the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't want peace. They just wanted peace on their own terms. And isn't that how we feel comfortable? When peace and comfort comes on our own terms? See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they wanted to maintain their positions of power because to them that was peace. Because when you're in charge and you're in control... Wouldn't you define that as peace? See, we also say that we want peace, but what, is, what does peace look like in our time? Just don't talk about it. That's what we've decided peace looks like in 2000, almost 20. Just don't talk about it. Agree to disagree. When that person walks into the room, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the other side of the room so I don't have to interact with them. I'm going to ignore texts and phone calls because I want to be at peace with this person. Peace in our time looks like when I'm confronted, I'm just going to leave, but not before I tell 82 million other people about it. See, Jesus has come to bring peace into our world. And we find that in our last text of the day in Romans 15. Both Isaiah and the psalmist talked about what would happen when the Messiah came. And John the Baptist made it very specific. This is what peace looks like for us beginning at verse 4. Such things were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us, and the Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Let's pause there for a second. When we read Psalms and Isaiah and we see that the Messiah is coming to bring peace, what we should find in them is hope and encouragement. Unless you're the powerful, unless you're the oppressor, Unless you're the violent. Because God's kingdom is coming at your expense. May God who gives us this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for the followers of Christ Jesus. This is what peace looks like. 
complete harmony. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God-honoring peace looks like when people join together with one voice. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. This is peace. To accept each other as God as Christ accepted us. Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And in another place it is written, Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And yet again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him, all you people of the earth. And in another place, Isaiah said, the heir to David's throne will come and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope in them. You think Paul's trying to make a point here by talking about the Gentiles? I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, these things, living in complete harmony with one another, joining together with one voice, accepting each other. These things ought to upend our peace. In a world that says, I don't want to talk to someone, this upends our peace because as Christians, we don't get to say that. As Christians, I don't want to talk to that person. That's not a Christian response. It's not a godly response. And I know we think it's easier, but it just doesn't honor God. And God is here to upend our peace. He's here to make us talk to one another, which we should want to do because we've all been saved. We've all been accepted by Christ. We ought to do these things. Living in harmony with people is hard work. Joining together with one voice requires sacrifice. Accepting each other as God accepted us is impossible without the Holy Spirit influencing us, without, change, without Him changing our hearts and changing our minds, without our obedience. See, Jesus is our peace, and this ought to unsettle every single one of us because we have to live lives differently than what our complacency calls us to. We are not safe because of our spiritual resumes or your pedigrees. It doesn't matter who your grandmother was. It doesn't matter if your grandfather was a charter member at a certain church. It, do it doesn't matter. That resume means nothing. We're not safe because we've been baptized with water. We're safe because we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Because Jesus has entered into our souls, he's invaded our hearts, and he's upended our lives. That's why we're safe, when we live upended lives. When we love the things that God loves. And if this causes you to feel tension, if I, I'm hoping today that I have taken your anxiety from this list to something completely different. 
So if you're feeling anxiety over the pending invasion of Jesus Christ 2.0 onto the earth, if you're feeling anxious about that, good. Because Jesus is coming to upend every single one of us because invasions are bloody, messy, violent affairs. My prayer for you and my prayer for me this Christmas season is that you are disturbed in a way that you've never been disturbed by the gospel. I don't want you to be disturbed by family problems or money problems or ridiculous lists like this. I don't want you to be disturbed because it's too late for you to plant your amaryllis for the season, maybe next year. I want you to be disturbed because the God of the universe has sent his son, Jesus, to save you from your own ideas of peace and to exchange them for his. I want you to be disturbed so you can understand this confident hope that you have through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that is going to disturb you. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would disturb our peace. That you would take us from a place of self-satisfaction and self-sufficiency and self-reliance. From a place of comfort and power and position. And we would see what you really have for us is a new way. Which is peace with you. Which is in alignment with your work in our lives. So God, these other anxieties that we feel, we just want to cast them over to you and exchange them for a holy anxiety, for a meaningful anxiety, that time is short, we are on mission, and that mission is to love other people. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.